historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum, and just as in the first episode, this being the second, I want to take 10 seconds and introduce myself. I'm an Israeli. I was born in Tel Aviv. At the age of 11, moved to the United States with my parents. Uh, at the age of 18, came back to Israel, served in the army, went to university, uh, started as a tour guide, set up a tour business, and set up this podcast. I would like to first start with the most dramatic event that took place in the Gaza, which is the bombing of the hospital, in which the Hamas claims over 500 people, over 500 Palestinians, they say, have died. Um, it is without a doubt, not even a hint of a doubt, that the Israeli Defense Forces, the Israeli Defense Forces Air Force, did not attack the hospital. As a matter of fact, it is clear, clear evidence that it was the Islamic Jihad launching a rocket from a cemetery very close to the hospital. One of the rockets was misfired. There was a problem with the rocket. It landed in the parking lot of the hospital, and it is the one that killed the people that were there. There are several video footages of the misfiring. One of them is from Al Jazeera, not exactly a pro-Israel news channel. There are many other independent news channels that actually have the footage of the misfiring by Islamic Jihad onto the hospital. There's also a phone conversation that was intercepted between two Hamas operatives, which talk about the misfiring of Islamic Jihad, how they fired it from a cemetery right behind the hospital, it failed. It fell right away onto the parking lot of the hospital, killing the people that were there. Now, the news sources, the media, immediately blamed Israel. They took the Hamas narrative. How can you take a Hamas narrative if you are a genuine news media? The president of Israel, President Herzog, said, and I quote, Shame on the media who swallows the lies of Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Broadcasting a 21st century but love libel around the globe. Shame on the vile terrorists in Gaza who willfully spill the blood of their innocent. President Herzog called it a blood libel. And for those that don't know what a blood libel is, you should actually look it up. Better you look it up. I'll just say in two words that a blood libel is considered to be a ritual murder in which Jews are blamed, are accused of killing young boys and using their blood for ritual such as making matzah for the Passover meal, the Passover Seder. This is a modern-day blood libel. We are already in the 11th day of battle with the Hamas, or rather yet, of the war with the Hamas, of the war with Muslim fundamentalism, the war with Hamas slash ISIS slash Nazi ideology. But before I tell you about the war, and I'm going to share with you stories about victims and about heroes and also about Israeli society. Before I do that, I think I need to ask a question that I've been asking myself since October 7th, 2023, since that terrible morning that started at 6.30 a.m. in Israel. How did we fail so badly? A colossal failure. Everything was right in front of our eyes. The Hamas was training for a year in trying to breach the wall and get into those communities and murder, butcher anyone in sight. Didn't matter how old they were. Didn't matter if they were a woman or a man. Didn't matter if it was grandmother or grandfather. Anyone in sight was butchered. Once again, the intelligence was right in front of our eyes. How does that happen? 
that the Ministry of Defense and the Israeli intelligence, both the military intelligence and also the Secret Service, the Israeli Prime Minister and all the other ministers all around, how do they not pick up on this? We Israelis, the Israeli Defense Forces, the Israeli military intelligence, and again, the Secret Service pride ourselves that we can find a culprit, a terrorist in the middle of the Arab world, where be it in Dubai or in the middle of the Persian country of Iran or in Turkey or anywhere, we can find them. And right next to our border, 200 yards away from our communities, we cannot pick up on training of 1,500 Hamas butchers that are going to go across the border and butcher our children? How does that happen? And the answer is both simple and also a little more complex. We now know that the soldiers responsible for gathering the information saw the training. We now know that the women that over the women soldiers that overlook into the border of Gaza saw them training, saw them looking at maps, saw them pointing to different areas of the fence where they were going to break in. All that information was given to the military intelligence and even to the Secret Service. As a matter of fact, the chief of staff and the head of the Secret Service had a meeting the night before, that is Friday night, to discuss what was going on. We don't know who they spoke to. We don't know who they relayed the information to. Not yet. We will one day, hopefully sooner than later. But the interpretation of all these drills was that the Hamas was just pushing our buttons in order to make us give them more money, in order to, in order to make us allow more um, workers from the Gaza come into Israel and work on a daily basis. We interpreted the military information, the intelligence military information, wrong. And that is because we were caught up by a concept that the Hamas wants to better the life of the Gazans, that the Hamas was also deterred by the Israeli might, by the Israeli strength. We thought... Well, there's 20,000 Gazan Palestinians that come into Israel on a daily basis. They work in Israel. They return to Gaza. They bring into the Gaza, into the Gazan economy, about 10 million shekels per day. 10 million Israeli shekels per day. We thought the Hamas was simply provoking us with this military training exercises because they want more workers to come into Israel and better their economy and hence better their life. We thought they wanted more cash given to them by Qatar with Israel's blessing. Once again, we got it all wrong. One of the best intelligence apparatuses in the world, Israel's, failed miserably and tragically. The intelligence was there, but we interpreted it wrong. 180 degrees wrong. And once again, how did this happen? Well, it's almost simple to say, or simplistic rather yet to say, that we used the idea of Western political tools to understand or comprehend their goal. And again, we got it wrong. So I used to joke around with some of my tourists that if you want to understand the Middle East using political tools that are Western political tools, that's like a dentist going to do a root canal with a 10-pound hammer. That dentist is going to break your teeth. He's got the wrong tool in his hands. And we, the military intelligence and the Secret Service Intelligence here in Israel fell into that concept that we had a tool that we thought we knew what they were doing. They just wanted to better their lives. They wanted more money. They wanted to be like us. Wrong. We did not understand the full extent of the ideology 
and their wishful thinking, and almost, I want to say, their messianic thinking. The messianic thinking that Israel could actually disappear if you heard it enough. The Israeli chief of staff, the Israeli head of the military intelligence, the head of the Shin Bet, which is the Israeli secret service, comparable to the FBI. Some of our government ministers, not Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, but everyone I mentioned actually took responsibility. They said, we failed you. We failed you. And it's very clear that we're going to now win this war. And once the war is over, it is very clear to whoever listened to them, they will then need to resign and be replaced. You know, um, I have uh, brought to my tour groups uh, a retired colonel by the name of Danny Tirza. And he actually was the person that was strategically responsible for building the barrier between the West Bank and Israel. And although a different spot, because this was not the West Bank, this happened in Gaza, Danny Tirza would give lots of examples of the fence, the barrier, how it's supposed to work. But one story that he always told always caught me um, when I thought about it, because what he was basically wanted to say was that if we look at their goals, at their intentions with Western political tools, we're not going to understand. And he gives the example of the olive tree. Now, if I told you, hey, look at that, look at that demonstration over there of Palestinians walking around with olive branches. The first thing that comes into mind of a Westerner, and for a matter of fact, not just Westerners, anyone that knows that the symbol of the olive tree is a symbol of peace, that means that the first thing that comes to your mind is, hey, this is a peaceful demonstration. But what's interesting is, is that in the Palestinian culture, the olive tree symbolizes something in Arabic called tumud. And tumud means that the olive tree is there forever. The olive tree symbolizes my land. When they demonstrate with the olive tree or the olive branch, the Westerners or the others that see them look and say, hey, a peaceful demonstration, versus the Palestinians who understand, and the rest of the Arab world as well, who understand what they're really demonstrating. What they're really saying is, this is our land, symbolized by the olive tree that will never die, and hence, this is our land forever. Again, it's a manipulation. It's a play on culture. But once we try to understand it, we don't because we don't have the political tool to actually understand it. And what I'm saying is, is that our military intelligence, our chief of staff, our minister of defense, many ministers, and our prime minister did not understand this because they looked at it using different political tools, different glasses. They just couldn't see it coming. And to their credit, once again, other than our prime minister, they have all admitted to this. Okay, so this also brings up another question, an important question. And the question is, can fascist ideology, can any ideology, be eradicated? I'm going to uh, research that and tell you about it in just a few minutes. But what I want to tell you about first is what's going on in Israeli society now as we speak, rather yet from the 7th of October onwards. So the context is that for years now, and I've mentioned this before, Israeli society has been divisive, very divisive. As a matter of fact, Israeli society has been broken up into almost what you can call a tribes. Um, there's a religious tribe, and I'm generalizing because there's many, there are many different walks of religious life, but there's a religious tribe, there's a secular tribe, 
There is a tribe of the conservatives, which you have in America and other places as well, and a tribe of liberals. There is a tribe here in Israel of people who are pro-legislation in trying to limit the checks and balances of the government and the parliament of Israel. And then there are those, or that tribe, which is anti-legislation with what they've organized as unprecedented widespread demonstrations. Um, no other country, I think, in the Western world or in general has held 40 weeks, 40 straight weeks of demonstrations against the proposed legislation. Not to mention the fact that there's a tribe of Arab Israelis. They make up 21% of the population of Israel. Most of, most of them are stuck between a rock and a hard place. If they're too loyal to Israel, they're looked upon as betraying the Arab-Palestinian cause. If they're too loyal to the Palestinian cause, the Jews in Israel don't trust them. They really are stuck between a rock and a hard place. October 7th changed everything. And I want to give you a couple of examples of how Israeli society functions as a result of this horrible massacre and the realization that it's all about us being united against a very atrocious, butchering monster. The first story is of a captain, an El Al airline captain, who scheduled a fly from Bangkok, Thailand to Tel Aviv. And I want to read you real quick something that was written by one of the passengers, a young man who was eager to come back to Israel and to enlist in, the reserve, in his reserve unit and to go and fight for Israel. And he says this, Thanks to the captain of the Elal flight from Bangkok to Tel Aviv, amidst all the waves of civilian volunteers and the extraordinary mobilization of all walks of life in Israel, I wanted to share and acknowledge and say thank you to the captain of a particular El Alaf flight. On Tuesday morning, I returned to Israel from Tokyo via Bangkok. Before boarding the plane from Bangkok to Israel, the terminal was full of young Israeli backpackers eager to return to Israel and enlist to their military reserve duty. So many young people were there that the plane was totally full. But upon boarding, an announcement was made that all those who still do not have a seat, please wait, will try to get everyone on the plane. There were dozens of young men there who wanted to return to enlist El Al took all the available seats on the plane and filled them up to the brim. I felt sorry for those that could not get on the plane due to the lack of space. Then, to my surprise, after they finished filling the plane, the El Al people, the captain, took more than 20 young people and put them on the plane and they put them in the crew's folding chairs. After that, the captain gave permission and put on the flight more than 10 young people who were sitting on the floor in the kitchen, and near the doors of the plane. In my entire life, I have never seen a flight where dozens of people are sitting on the floor. During the entire flight, they slept on the floor, wherever it was possible, including near the cockpit, on the floor in the business class, and at every corner of the plane. The picture speaks for themselves and illustrate a little of what happened. On this special flight, during the flight, I saw the captain walking around the plane, making sure the crew was taking care of all these wonderful young people. Thanks to the wonderful team of El Al and the pilot and the flight attendants for the extraordinary gesture. Kudos to the CEO of El Al for having such employees. I have to admit, they warmed my heart. There's a segment of Israeli society 
the ultra-Orthodox Jews, the Haredim, as we call them in Hebrew, that have been criticized mainly by secular organizations and also secular leadership, as well as secular civilians, for not pulling their weight in the military, for not being drafted, for the most, most of them are not drafted, into the military. Well, October 7th changed a little bit of that too. There was a private initiative as a result of October 7th, as a result of the atrocities, that began registering ultra-Orthodox volunteers for a variety of positions in the Israeli Defense Forces to help now during the war. Thousands of ultra-Orthodox Jews, the Haredim again, have now volunteered to serve in the Israeli Defense Forces. Now, this started as a, a civilian initiative, private initiative, started by Rabbi Ram Moshe Rabad, who actually was the rabbi of the Air Force at one point, and a private citizen named Eliyahu Glansberg, who again is ultra-Orthodox Haredi, and he actually is involved in a program called Blue on the Horizon. It's a program, a project, to integrate ultra-Orthodox computer and programming personnel into positions in the Israeli Air Force. Uh, Eliyahu Glansberg, again, he's 38 years old, He's Haredi, ultra-Orthodox. He says, people of all walks of life signed up. There are people who carry weapons, programmers, social workers, all professions. There are yeshiva students, people with a variety of abilities. Since there are a lot of casualties, unfortunately, that need to be taken care of, they were also contacted by people who have experience with Jewish burial. Some of them were sent to the Yarkon Cemetery, that's just outside of Tel Aviv, to dig up burial, burial plots. There's a very large variety of Haredim stepping forward. Eliyahu Gensberg says, My phone has become a call center in the last few days. I became a one-man information center. The Israeli Defense Forces Personnel Department understands the potential that is here. And they have enlisted these men. And their military jobs are not going to be combat because that you need long training for. But they're going to take a few weeks of training and have support jobs There'll be drivers, warehouse workers, cooks, medical staff, and much more. Israeli society has come together like I've never seen before. Unfortunately, it takes a tragedy. But I think we all look at it and we say, what are we fighting about between each other when there's such a butchering enemy, a monster, that wants to completely annihilate us? Let's come together. As one, we will stand strong and defeat this enemy. As I did in episode one, and as I will do in the rest of the episodes, I do want to tell you also the story of the victims. One of the most shocking stories among the multitude of difficult stories from this massacre um, is the story of Itai and Hadar Berdachevsky. Itai and Hadar were a 30-year-old young couple with 10-month-old twin sons. The story that we know about them is told to us by their neighbor. Their neighbor served in the emergency squad. In Hebrew, we call that kitat konanut. The idea of the emergency squad is that when there's trouble or there's an infiltration, that squad jumps together really quickly, gathers their weapons, and tries to protect their community. The neighbor says that he had fought by himself a firefight with the Hamas butchers for one and a half hours. After that time, he understood it was hopeless he was outmanned, he was outgunned, he was almost out of ammunition. So he stepped into the house of Itai Nadal to see if he could rescue them. The first thing he saw was a 
submachine gun called the Kalachnikov. It's a Soviet, or was a Soviet, now it's a Russian-made gun. And what he saw was not the gun itself, but rather the magazine, an empty magazine that had bullets in it on the floor. He right away understood that this magazine, used by the Hamas butchers, was used to perhaps, and almost definitely, kill the family inside. At 6.54 a.m., that's almost exactly 30 minutes after the butchers came into the kibbutz, Hadar sent her last text message to her brother saying something like, so much fun being stuck here in the safe room, the mamad as we call it in Hebrew, with a baby's poop. She was even somewhat joking, thinking, oh, it's just a rocket barrage, which we've experienced many times. Hours later, the IDF special units came into the house, or they came into the kibbutz, to kill off all the terrorists. They met with a neighbor, Hadaganitai's neighbor, who took them into the house, and they immediately identified the body of Hadar in the living room and the body of Itai on the safe, in the safe room. But what about the babies, the twins? Where are they? They found the babies alive, dehydrated, hidden away by their parents. They were there for 12 hours. The neighbor said that they immediately gave them water, the baby's water, and they drank it up immediately. They were so thirsty and dehydrated. Again, they spent 12 hours on their own, the 10-month-old month, 10 month old babies. They were then taken, given to the brother of Hadar and to the, their grandparents, and they're going to tend to them as much as they can. They were orphaned on that morning. Another victim of the brutal attack is a man named Noi Shush. Noi is married to, to Michol. They have two children, five years old, four years old, and one and a half. Noi is actually a officer in the reserves, but he lived on Kibbutz Beiri. He was at home with his wife and children when the attack began. At one point, the terrorists broke into the house or tried to break into the house. Noi only had a handgun with him. He shot at them, trying to repel them from hurting his family, and they shot back at him and they injured him gravely. As he was lying down in the safe room, he told his wife, take the gun and do something. Machol, the wife, had no idea what to do with the gun. She hadn't fired a gun since she was in basic training years before, really didn't know what to do with it. She said to him, what do I do with this? He said, it's loaded, it's ready, shoot at them, save the kids. Now at this time, the house is already being set on fire. The Hamas butchers, in order to get people out of their safe room, took spare tires of cars that were there on the kibbutz. They lit them on fire, rolled them into the house so that people would either die of suffocation or being burnt to death. Or if they escaped out of the windows, the Hamas butchers were waiting there to shoot them dead. Machol realized that the house was being set on fire. There was already smoke. They were suffocating. She needed to open a window. But she knew as soon as she opened the window, she was going to have a firefight. She had to open it. She went to the window, opened it up, and started shooting from the handgun. The terrorists, the butchers, were frightened off and ran away. She saved her kids. She went back to Noi to treat him. And as she looked at him, she noticed that he no longer had a pulse. She saved her children, she said, but she couldn't save her husband. A third story is of a young woman soldier named Reut, who was serving on the Gaza border. And when the attack began, she texted her mother, um, we are being attacked, they're shooting at us. 
Now, Reut had said that she didn't have a reception, but somehow the, the text message went through. I guess the phone did get reception at one point. And when she noticed at the reception, she called her mother up. She said, once again, they're attacking us. They're shooting at us. They're killing people. The brothers, two brothers of Reut, were in the home. Stav, one of them's name is Stav. The other one's name is Lior. When they overheard the conversation of Reut panicking and crying that she was about to die, they immediately got in their car. They drove to the base. They said, we didn't think about anything. We were going to go get our sister. They did. They went into the base. They somehow broke into the base with their private vehicle. They arrived at Reut after getting her location. They found her there alive. They took her into the car. As they were going to the car, they picked her up and took her to the car. As they were going to the car, they saw another soldier who was lying there bleeding. So they picked him up. They put him in the car as well. And all four of them drove off the base. At one point, they reached a police barricade, or at least what they thought was a police barricade. They saw Israeli police or Israeli peace uniforms. And so Stav, the brother, took out the Israeli flag and waved it in the air so that they could see that they weren't terrorists, but rather they were Israelis. And immediately when he waved the flag, that those policemen, which were actually Hamas butchers dressed in Israeli police uniforms, started shooting at them. Stav was hit in the arm. He realized this was not uh, uh, our forces. He got back in the car and somehow swerved away, sped away, and was actually able to reach the hospital. Now, the three of them were interviewed on television. Reut was sitting in the middle of her two brothers, and the, 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 the television uh, um, commentator, the television uh, reporter, says to the brothers, what were you thinking when you went to the car, when you went to, to save Reut? And they looked at him and said, you know, we really didn't think much. All we knew is that we got to get our sister. There's nothing else to think about. And then he said to them, and what were you thinking when you were being fired at? And they said, look, it was a big balagan, which means it was a big mess. It was chaos. But again, we were focused on saving our sister. The soldier they picked up was also saved and actually has come out of his injury. If you could just see Reut's face, as I did, she looked at her brothers with huge amounts of love and admiration. The brothers, Stav and Lio, interviewed by the journalist, looked at him, and I must tell you, their look basically said the following. Why are you asking us these questions? This is a no-brainer. Our sister was in danger. Her life was about to be taken by butchers. We went out there and we saved her. It's a no-brainer. The last story I want to tell you of a victim, but also a hero, is of a girl, a woman named Adal, an army officer. And I want to tell you about this by reading the eulogy of her sister, her only sister. And she says this, Aidar, my only sister, my fighter, the commander of the platoon, our officer. Is it egotistical to be mad at you for rushing in first? To protect you rookie soldiers from these human scum terrorists? I am proud of you. My whole body is burning with pain and a sense of pride that you save them with your body so many human lives. Aidar, my little and only sister. I adored you and learned from you as if you were the big sister. I try to be strong, but you are the strongest among us. You were never afraid of anything. Everything was nonsense to you. Take it in proportion, you always told me. Stop crying over nonsense, you said. And now I can't stop crying for you, my beautiful sister. They took one of my ribs Half my heart is buried with you because we are hand in hand forever. A month ago, I got engaged. You posted a story and wrote, My dream is coming true. 
My older sister is getting married. How will I get married without you? How will I dance when you won't dance with me? How will I enter the chupa without looking at you, smiling at me, and proud of me? There's no one else for me, Adar, my only sister. Everything I imagined for both of us in life died together with you. No more just the two of us, just the girls. No more trips together, and no more just us. On Saturday, October 7th, 2023, 6.33 a.m., I got up from these sirens and immediately sent you a message. Hey, Adar, are you at the base? Do you hear the sirens? You responded. Shachaf, it's so scary. Rockets are flying above me. Some fell inside our base. For the first time in your life, you wrote to me that you were afraid. Then you wrote, nine terrorists are running towards us. I have a bullet in the barrel. Shema Israel, Hear, O God, the God of Israel. I begged you to hide and save yourself, but you are a hero. You stepped in front and protected everybody else. We are in positions, you wrote to me, waiting for them. You informed me as if you knew what was going to happen. Then at 7.38, the last message from you was, We are in a firefight. My soldiers were hit and are wounded. I kept texting you, If you're okay, I begged for a sign, but you no longer answered. My beauty... How much you loved what you did in the army. You are a real fighter. Everyone admired and admires you, now even more. You're always everyone's leader and the first to help with anything needed. You always, always thought of everyone else before yourself. In your notebook, you wrote your words in an opening speech to your soldiers. You were so organized and devoted to them that you didn't miss a thing. One sentence you wrote made us shiver. We are going to go through many things together. We will experience difficult, happy, funny, and maybe also painful moments. But together, we can get through everything. Adar, my one and only sister. I still don't know how we will get through this. A very deep hole opened in the heart of each one of us. Right now, we see black, wear black, sit on the couch with a torn shirt, cry over you, and try hard to believe that you are really in a better place. There are so many words I have to say to you, but I will leave it to our conversation at night. Like every night we would fall asleep together and you would soothe me to sleep. I promise you that Raz, me and Aviv will take care of mom and dad. We will stay united and strong just for you. I miss you and I'm burning inside. Adal, my sister. The pain in my heart that I feel, only you will understand. The hero of Israel, the hero of the family, and my personal hero. I love you, Adar, my only sister. Forever you will be with me in every cell in my body. To finish this episode, I actually want to circle back to what I discussed about our failure, our colossal failure of understanding what the intentions of Hamas were. As I mentioned, we failed on a military level in the beginning hours of this attack, We also failed, of course, on the intelligence level, and again, as I mentioned before. But perhaps our biggest failure was the understanding of the ideology. We didn't comprehend how ingrained the hatred of Israel and the Jews is in these Muslim fundamentalist radical ideology. This radical ideology did not start with the establishment of the state of Israel. This is not a territorial conflict. 
On the 24th of August, 1929, much before Israel became a state, in a city called Hebron, which is located in the Judea part or the what's called the West Bank, there were rumors that were spread among the Arabs living there that the Jews were planning to seize control of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Some of the Arab residents of Hebron gathered in a bloodthirsty mob. They grabbed knives, they grabbed metal rods and axes. They stormed the Haredi ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, hacking to death 67 of them. Again, 1929. It's important to point out that some of the Arab residents of Hebron hid away Jews from these butchers. Actually, they saved the majority of the Jewish community. This Nazi ideology, the butchering of Jews, anti-Semitism, was not prevalent among the Muslims, but it was prevalent among their leadership. Haj Amin al-Husseini, who was the Mufti of Jerusalem, a Mufti is a Muslim legal expert who is empowered to give rulings on religious matters. He advocated for the elimination of the Jews in the Middle East, starting with Palestine. On November 28, 1941, he met with Hitler. The Mufti of Jerusalem, Khajim al-Husseini's goal, was that the Nazis will exterminate the Jews living in the Middle East and award the Palestinians a country that would be Juden-free, as the Nazis would call Germany and the rest of Europe. Germany was stopped by Egypt, if you remember, in a famous battle at Al Alamein in Egypt. Um, Montgomery, the British general, was able to stop Rommel, the German, what they called the Desert Fox. His troops were stopped in Egypt. If they had arrived in Israel, the Jewish community's fate was very well known, and Hajjamin al Husseini, the Mufti Jerusalem, was pushing for it. He actually, the Mufti, actually broadcasted anti Jewish and anti-Allied propaganda by radio to the Arab world. He called for the Muslim men in the Arab world to serve militarily against the Jews and against the Western allies in favor, of course, of the German Nazis. The Germans provided shelter and funds to Mufti Mufti al-Husseini. They set him up in a villa in Berlin. He got a lavish uh, uh, salary. He got a stipend. He got residence. And in return the Mufti spewed radical anti-Semitism. All this while Jews were being shot into pits and led into gas chambers. Look, not all Arab Muslims in the Middle East hate all Jews. I mentioned in the past that 21% of Israel are Arab. They're Israeli citizens. There's not anti-Semitism that's rampant among the Arab Israelis because they live with us. A lot of other Arabs in the Middle East are not anti-Semitic. They do not hate Jews because of the fact that they're Jews. But their leadership, their leadership is spewing a brainwashing of hatred of Jews. And I want to circle back again also to the president of the Palestinians, Mahmoud Abbas, otherwise known as Abu Mazen. On September 7th, that's exactly a month before the Hamas butchers murdered our people, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinians, made a speech addressing the Fatah Revolutionary Council, and later it was aired on Palestinian television. His remarks were then translated by Middle East Media Research Institute, that's called MEMORY, and the translation was verified by the BBC News. Again, BBC is not exactly a pro-Israel news channel, and they verified that this speech was correct. And here's what he says. They say that Hitler killed the Jews for being Jews. And the Europeans hated the Jews because they were Jews. 
No, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinians said, that's not the case. It was clearly explained, he continued, that they fought them because of their social role and not their religion. And then he specified what he meant, what he was referring to by the role of the Jews. And he said it involves usury. In other words, the Jews were used legal action or practice of lending money at unreasonably high rates of interest. Now, over the years, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinians, has continued to give long, rambling, anti-Semitic speeches. The question that we're going to ask and answer in a future episode with an expert is, can fascist ideology be eradicated? I will host a historian that will speak about the ability to denazification of Germany, as well as the Japan ideology, World War II fascist ideology, and other regimes in recent history. The Inside Israel podcast can be listened to on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Amazon Music, on Google Podcasts, and more. We need your support in order to keep this podcast going. Please email me at itai, that's I-T-A-I, at insideisrael.fm. That's itai, I-T-A-I, at insideisrael, one word, dot F.